0: Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor of theology, church history, Old and New Testament at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. I'm thankful that you've had a chance to to listen today. And I just want to share with you a, a few weeks ago, actually it was last week, um, I engaged in a podcast discussion or a debate with um, the men over at Pastor With No Answers. And this podcast will be online in a few days, uh, but it was with Chris Date and Joey and Jared over at Pastor With No Answers, and it was on the nature of hell. And so what it was, was I was supposed to represent the traditional or orthodox view of hell being a place of eternal conscious torment for those who do not have faith in Christ. Chris Date, on the other hand, proposed the other view, the view that's called the annihilationism view or conditional immortality view. Uh, Chris is an evangelical Christian. He believes in inerrancy and the authority of the Bible. He considers himself a five-point Calvinist, so we have many things in common. But he believes in what's called annihilationism, the belief that the wicked in hell will suffer for a period of time, and then after that, they will cease to exist. They will be annihilated. They will die in hell. There's not eternal conscious torment for unbelievers in hell. And so what I'd like to do is, you can, you can listen to that podcast when it comes out, Pastor With No Answers, but I wanted to just share my thoughts and my, my views on this on a podcast so that you would have an understanding um, of really where the traditional view is in line with the annihilationism view. And this is a topic that I really didn't have a lot of knowledge on. Obviously, um, I've always believed in the traditional or the orthodox view of hell. Um, I knew that cults like the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses believed in annihilationism and then um, some some aberrant groups like Seventh-day Adventists also believe in it. So I, I kind of did not delve much into that because I figured, though, well, that's a view just held by by cults or aberrant groups. But as um, I was forced to engage this topic with a brother who actually is an evangelical born-again Christian who does hold to the um, orthodox views that I hold to, but up on this one issue we differ very greatly, um, I had to do some research into what it is that they actually believe. And so what I want to give you are the three major presuppositions to this position. They come to the table with three uh, presuppositions or three majorly held beliefs that they hold to. And, and, and these beliefs are really the linchpins or the foundations for um, how they come exegetically to the belief in annihilationism. And Here's the first foundational view the supposition that they come with uh, the conditional immortality view this is the view that only believers only believers are given the gift of immortality at the new birth, at regeneration, and so therefore, believers have the ability to live forever in heaven. Whereas non-believers, the lost, are not given the gift of immortality, and so when they are raised to new life and they are judged and they are sent to hell because they do not have the gift of immortality, they will eventually die in hell and cease to exist, both body and. Soul. So that's, that's number one. And that's really, the, I think, the, the logical starting point where they, they come from that it gives them the belief that they have. Number two, they look at eternal being not so much ongoing, durative, forever and ever, but more as being qualitative or the fact that it's final. Uh, they look at the word eternal differently than the way we would look at the word eternal when you think of the word eternal we normally automatically think of ongoing on and on forever and ever no end uh, they view eternal or eternity differently for the lost in that in that way number 3 they have a different understanding of the words punishment and destruction than we would have. They see those words as meaning utter annihilation or obliteration or extinction as opposed to ongoing eternal torment. So let's look at these, and I want to look at some passages of Scripture, but let's just start with the conditional immortality view. Um, Immortality, they would argue, is a gift given exclusively to believers at regeneration, but not to the unsaved wicked. And their starting point for this is in Genesis 2-7, where God created Adam. Genesis 2-7 says this, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then the man became a living creature. Now, what they would argue here is that In the creation of Adam, God did not gift Adam with immortality or the ability to live forever. God created Adam not immortal, but dependent, uh, conditional upon God's sustaining providence and grace in his life. And so Adam was created with the potentiality of living forever, but not with immortality. It was really God's sustaining grace that would keep him alive. And then we know in Genesis 3.22, after the fall, the tree of life is forfeited to Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. What they would argue is that forfeiture to the tree of life proves that in the fall, humans lost their immortality. So what they had in the fall was the losing of what they, uh, of immortality. Now, this is somewhat of a logical fallacy because if you argue that humans were not endowed with immortality in creation pre-fall, if they didn't have that, then how in the world can it be taken away from them in post-fall? Really what we find out is that in Genesis 2.7 and in Genesis 1.23, a man was created in God's image. And there's a lot of debate about what it means to be created in God's image. But we can understand that it's a unity of soul and body, I believe, designed to live forever. The human person is a unitary being consisting. So it's a unitary. we are a unitary being, but we have a material body, a physical body from the natural order dust. And we have been animated or we've been having life or soul breathed into us by God. And Genesis 2.7 does not say that Adam possessed a soul, rather it says he became or he was a living soul, which I believe traditionally, and has been held by, by Christians, is that becoming a living soul means that humans have the ability to live forever in immortality. Now, one thing we have to understand is this account in Genesis does not explicitly teach, it does not explicitly teach that the human soul is immortal, So we have to argue from silence on this particular text. Yet on the flip side, it does not explicitly teach that man is not made immortal. So really we have to understand that how you understand being created in the image of God is really going to color the way that you view this issue. One thing we do do know for certain is this, is that uh, the image of God is not eradicated or erased after the fall we know that what we had in God's image before the fall was not taken away. In Genesis 5.1 and in Genesis 9.6, we find that we are still created in God's image. Acts 17.28 says that we are God's offspring. And so some people look at that passage of Scripture and say, well, because we're God's offspring, we're created in the image of God, we have the God-like qualities in creation. Not that we are God's not like the Mormons believe, but that we have um, the the image and likeness of God in the sense that we have a soul, we have the ability to communicate with God, and we would have the ability to live forever. And so what we would say is that Adam died spiritually and physically not because he was created mortal, but because of God's judgment on his sin. Now, there are some key exegetical verses that the annihilationist or the conditional um, immortality um, proponents adhere to, and one that Chris is particularly fond of is Isaiah sixty six twenty two through twenty four. And this is really quoted by Jesus in the Gospel of Mark when Jesus talks about hell. And so let's read together Isaiah sixty six twenty two through twenty four. Isaiah writes, "For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain." From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Because it is in Mark 9, 43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than two hands to go to hell. To the unquenchable fire, and if your foot caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye caused you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. Now, we would look at that passage of scripture from Jesus that talks about hell being where the worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. To me, that teaches. Eternal conscious torment in hell. The the fire's not quenched, the worm doesn't die. It's perpetual, it's ongoing. And Jesus goes and quotes back from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 24, where it says, Their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. Now, we have to look at this in context of what Isaiah is saying. If you go back to verse 22, This is a prophecy about the new heaven and the new earth. Now, we need to understand something. In the Old Testament, there's not a lot of explicit teaching about hell. There's, there's a few passages that tend to allude to that. This is one of those. But this is a passage where we have the prophecy about God making a new heaven and a new earth for the redeemed, for the offspring of God to live forever. And in verse 23, it says, From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Now, this whole idea from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, obviously this is a metaphor. This is a symbol for ongoing, perpetual, continual worship in the new heavens and the new earth. There's this idea that in heaven there will be this ongoing, perpetual, time and time again, duration, ongoing of of worship coming before the Lord, glorifying His name, worshiping before Him. And then in the very next verse, verse 24, it talks about where the lost, the dead, will be in this place of fire where the worm does not die and the fire not quenched. And so what I see is a Hebrew parallelism. Often in the Hebrew text you have a parallelism where there's these things going on that are parallel in nature. And so what I would see, and I think this is corroborated when we look at Jesus here in just a few moments in the Gospel of Matthew, that what is going on in the new heaven and the new earth with this perpetual ongoing worship, new moon to new moon to Sabbath by Sabbath of the, of the believers in heaven, there's a parallel image of what's going on in hell where the non-believers, the lost, are perpetually in a state of torment. The fire's not quenched, the worm doesn't die. And so we see these two things together. One commentator from the book of Isaiah uh, Spence Jones professor says this he says the incongruity of the two images shows that they are not to be understood literally but both alike imply everlasting continuance and are incompatible with either the two modern heresies of universalism and annihilationism now what i want to do here is i want us to look at matthew 25 41 through 46 Because I think Matthew 25, 41 through 46, in parallel with the book of Revelation, really explicitly teach eternal conscious torment in hell forever and ever. So this is Jesus' teaching on the final judgment, separating the sheep from the goats. And so let's pick up in Matthew 25, 41 through 46. Jesus says, then he will say to those on his left... Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire. That last verse there is very key as far as what we need to understand, as far as eternal judgment and eternal life. Now, one thing we need to understand is that in verse 41, it says that there has been eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And then in verse 46, it says these will go away into eternal punishment. So contextually, I think we have to see eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels as the same place that the wicked will go away into, into eternal punishment. Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 14 tells us this place of eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In Revelation twenty, ten 10-14, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne of him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were also judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, one thing we see here is that the devil and the false prophet and the beast were thrown into this lake of fire where they will be tormented day and night Forever and ever. That's the terminology that John uses there in Revelation. Day and night showing a progression forever and ever. Showing this eternal progression where they will be tormented. Now Jesus back in Matthew 25, 41 says, Go into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I believe he's talking about the same thing. This eternal fire where there will be torment day and night. Verse 46, Jesus calls it eternal punishment the righteous eternal life. So I think there's a parallelism. Now, I think verse 46 also gives us a parallelism. It says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so I see this as a parallel. What the righteous are experiencing in eternal life, ongoing forever and ever, is parallel to what the unrighteous, what the lost people will experience in eternal punishment ongoing forever and ever. Now, Chris Date would disagree with this. He would say that there's a parallelism, but it's, it, the parallelism is, it comes to light when we see that only those that have life will live forever because they believe in conditional um, immortality. So he would say, yes, the righteous go into eternal life because they have the ability through regeneration to live forever, but the unrighteous don't get the ability to live forever, so they go to eternal punishment, and he sees eternal punishment as ceasing to exist at one point, finally dying out in hell, not eternal conscious torment. Now, another thing we have to look at is the word punishment. They will go away to eternal punishment. The Greek word simply means chastisement or retributive punishment. It doesn't say anything about extinction or annihilation. Um, what Chris and others in the review really believe is that this punishment is really the outcome or the result of the suffering. Uh, a person in hell suffers for a while then they die. They get the death sentence, they're executed, and what the finality of it is, or what the outcome of it is more the eternal thing. Um, he sees punishment as a completed noun of action, not as an ongoing verb. But the question we've got to ask in is, why does Jesus put the word eternal before the word punishment? Punishment. Eternal punishment. Speaking of a duration of punishment. Um, this word does not mean annihilate. Other uses of the word are in Acts 4.21. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. This is when Peter and John were preaching the gospel and they got punished. Uh, the same Greek word there it doesn't mean annihilated. It means that they spent time in prison. It was a, it was a prison sentence. They were punished for a duration of time uh, as a way to, 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 to chastise them, to say, don't keep preaching. Now, what I really want to focus on, though, is the word eternal, because there seems to be a lot of debate over what the word eternal means. Does the word eternal mean the finality of judgment in the age to come, that it's just a final judgment, that once people suffer for a while, they will finally die, and then that's the nature of the eternal judgment, that it's more a finality? Or would it be the common sense reading? What I think is the common sense reading is that it's ongoing, Eternal means on and on, ongoing. Now, if you look at the word eternal, the Greek word eternal, and you look at the top three or four what we call exegetical dictionaries or Greek lexicons that are reputable, and what I mean by reputable are ones that you would go to as a scholar, you would go to when you're writing a dissertation, or you're, you're doing scholarly work, not, not Strong's, which you know, nothing against Strong's, but that's just a basic one. Uh, but let's look at some, some very reputable uh, lexicons that give definitions. So Kittles, um, this is the big one. Um, it gives a comprehensive view um, written by by Kittle, uh, the Greek lexicon. Um, what he says is eternal means unceasing or endless. That's the way they define it, unceasing or endless. The BDAG, Bauer, Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich. It's probably the top one of the top Greek lexicons. This is what they they said. It's a, it's a Greek-English lexi- lexicon of the New Testament and of other early Christian literature, the BDAG. It says, pertaining to a period of unending duration without end. So that lexicon sees it as an unending duration without end. Okay, what about Lunida? Lunida is another reputable lexicon. It says, pertaining to... An unlimited duration of time. And then in talking about um, eternal life, it does give a qualitative distinction to it, not just the fact that it goes on and on, but there is a a qualitative distinction to it. Um, And so they see it as unending. The exegetical dictionary of the New Testament says that it is ongoing. They also talk about in relationship to judgment, they say, quote, in this negative accentuation, the meaning unceasing, everlasting comes through even more strongly than is true in cases where there is a positive stress. So they would even say that the the everlasting or eternal put before the word punishment or judgment enhances the idea that it's unceasing, that it's everlasting, that it's ongoing. And so Four of the top Greek lexicons define the term eternal in relation to these passages that talk about eternal destruction, eternal punishment, eternal life as ongoing, as unceasing, as on and on. And so... The, the, the actual word eternal at face value, even, even if you were to, and just a few weeks ago, I, I was in a Bible study with some, some people, it was an adult Bible study, and I just asked them in preparation for this podcast, when I say the term eternal, what do you think it means? And, and the first thing that came to their mind was, well, it means ongoing, it means forever, it means on and on. And I said, yeah, that's, that's the basic meaning of what the word eternal, when we all think of the word eternal, that's what normally comes to mind. And so that's what the Greek word means. Um, as far as part of its semantic domain in, in the lexicons and how it's used in the scriptures. Now, here's another question that we've got to ask. And this is the question I have. In this age to come in hell, where the lost are going to be punished for a period of time, how long is the time? What is the duration? Can they show me a verse that speaks of the timing or the length or the duration of the punishment that ends in annihilation? How temporary is it? Are there degrees of punishment? Um, does somebody, and I don't mean to be crass here, but is, is somebody who's who's larger, maybe a weight size, do they do they last longer in hell because there's more, more body fat? I, I don't know. Does somebody like Hitler, does he burn longer? Than some just normal lost person who didn't commit all these major atrocities against mankind, does he he burn for just a short amount of time? There's no particular passage of Scripture that teaches this duration. And when asked this question, they will say the Bible's silent on that. We don't know what the duration is of that. And so you have a problem there with this whole idea of of just how long is the duration? How long does it last? How, How long does a lost person suffer what is the, the right period of time? How long is long enough? Uh, the scriptures don't really seem to, to speak about this um, short or long or, or whatever duration. The Bible speaks of ongoing eternal punishment. Now, another question is could be, how can God exact infinite punishment for a, a finite sin? They would say, how can God make a person live forever in hell when they've sinned in their body Um, finitely they're they're, they're not it doesn't seem that the punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime well we need to understand that first of all the the sin is against an infinitely holy infinitely gracious and good supreme sovereign God and that in and of itself would deserve unending punishment but here's something I think I don't know if the Bible actually proves this This is more of an opinion. I don't think the scripture is explicit. So again, take me on this. This is Sean Cole's opinion, okay? So uh, I could be wrong on this. But I think that those condemned to hell will go on sinning for eternity. I I don't think there's any repentance in hell. Uh, If they're unregenerate, if they have not been regenerated and they're sent to hell, they're going to hate it there. They're going to continue to sin against God. And so the question then is, if they keep sinning and piling up sin and piling up sin and piling up sin for duration after duration, then would there not be more punishment to keep on going? Um, And so the punishment will continue as long as the sinning does. Now, again, I don't know if the Bible explicitly teaches that, but I think it makes sense based upon the totality of what the Scripture teaches about about sin. Now, one of the Scriptures I really want us to go to is Revelation fourteen. 9 through 12, because this is a parallel to Matthew's passage of Scripture. And I think these two passages together, what Matthew teaches and what Revelation teaches, give us some of the clearest teaching on hell as an eternal conscious torment. So let's read together Revelation 14, 9 through 12. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, And it's image and receives the mark on his forehead and on his hand. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here's a call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and their faith. In Jesus. Don't have time to go into all the teaching about the mark of the beast and other things, but let's just say this represents the the the, um, the fate, the finality of the lost people who will die and go to heaven. And so I think there is a parallel here to what Jesus taught us in Matthew twenty five, forty one through forty six, with this whole idea of eternal punishment. Now, let's just look at the word torment. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. The word torment does not mean extinction. It does not mean annihilation anywhere in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you just look through the book of Revelation, it almost always means conscious suffering. In chapter nine, verse five, it says they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them, and their torment was like the torment of scorpions when it stings someone. So there's a duration on the torment. It's it's five months there. You also see it in Revelation chapter twelve um, I'm sorry in Revelation chapter eleven, verse ten. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. They had tormented them. They had, they had, it was a duration of time. Uh, we, well, you also see it again in chapter 20, verse 10, where we saw that the smoke of their torment, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the, the lake of fire where the devil and the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And so the word torment... Almost always, even in the book of Revelation, means conscious suffering. It does not mean annihilation. It does not mean death. And also notice the word day and night. They were tormented day and night. This references this ongoing conscious restlessness. Notice what it says. They will be tormented day and night. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest. They have no rest. It's this idea that the torment goes on day and night. They have no rest. It's this conscious restlessness that they're experiencing in hell because of the torment. And it says the smoke goes up of their torment. Now, the smoke is not complete destruction. It's the smoke of their torment. The the nature of this torment is ceaseless unrest not annihilation. If it were annihilation, then why would there never be rest? Wouldn't annihilation mean the cessation of existence and thus an end? And by nature, the torment speaks of unending lack of rest. So once you die, then you can no longer exist. And so the, re- the, the unceasing unrest is over. And so you have this picture of night and day, have no rest, unceasing, torment. The parallel grammatical structure have no rest day and night is verbatim to the Greek phrase in chapter 4, verse 8 of the four living creatures. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says, And the four living creatures, each, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night they never cease to say. So here's the picture. In heaven, day and night, unceasing, In the state of eternal rest, as the book of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 would tell us, Christians, believers, are forever in a state of rest, unceasingly worshiping the Lamb, Jesus Christ, day and night. Parallel to that, non-believers, the lost, are in hell, suffering conscious torment day and night. They never have rest. The smoke of their torment goes up day or night. It is an eternal rest. Punishment, So I think those two verses, Matthew chapter 25, verses 41 through 46, and Revelation chapter 14, really give us some strong teaching on the eternal conscious torment of unbelievers in hell. Now let's look at a problematic verse, because here's a verse that at first glance may seem a little problematic and may, may seem to teach the, the, the view of annihilationism. And that's from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 8 through 9. Now, one thing we need to remember is that Paul does not do a lot of explicit teaching on hell. Uh, This is probably the most um, clear passage he has on it. Jesus does a lot more teaching on the doctrine of hell. The book of Revelation has a lot more on the doctrine of hell. But here's Paul in talking about when Christ comes back, how he's going to come back in vengeance, inflicting judgment, upon his enemies and then the final resting place of the saints as well as the final place of those who are against God. So 2 Thessalonians 1, 8-9. Jesus will come back in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now, there's the word destruction there. So the question we've got to ask is, what is the nature of this punishment in relation to the term eternal destruction? What does the word destruction mean? Does it mean annihilation? Does it mean extinction? Or does it mean torment? It's the Greek word olethros. The Greek word olethros, destruction. The other place we find it in Paul's writings is in 1 Thessalonians Five three, while people are saying there's peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now the question is, are there are there two destructions? One at the coming of the Lord, where they will not escape His judgment, and they'll be destroyed forever. Or is there a destruction later on after they've suffered an indeterminate period of time in hell? Uh, if you take the the view of annihilationism, and you see these two destructions, and you really have you have a destruction that comes at the second coming and then you have a destruction that comes later on after they've suffered time in, in hell. So which one is it? If, it? if it's a destruction that means annihilation or extinction, you would think at the second coming of Christ, they would be destroyed. They, they would cease to exist. But the Bible teaches there's a resurrection of the unrighteous. They'll face judgment, and then they will spend time in hell, according to the annihilation view, for a period of time, and then they will be destroyed. So the question then becomes, what does this word destruction mean? Olethros... Another Greek word is apollomy. Apollomy um, is used often to, to, to talk about the word destruction. Let's just look at these two words. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 14, now I know Ezekiel is in the Old Testament, and so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there's what's called the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and so it's the, it's the Bible that really Paul and, and even Jesus used in their day, and sometimes they will translate hebrew words into greek that gives us an idea of how it's used also in the new testament and so in ezekiel 6 14 i will stretch up my hand against them and make the land into a desolation and into a ruin olethros make the land into a ruin so really it's not the land is destroyed cease to exist it means that the land is fruitless the land is barren the land is not fulfilling what it's supposed to be filling it's corrupt it's ruined so, so the word elethros, even in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, can speak of a land that is fruitless, not a land that's destroyed, totally, that's annihilated, that ceases to exist, but fruitless. 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, when Paul is talking about uh, the brother in the church in Corinth who was sinning, claimed to be a Christian, was having an incestuous relationship. Uh, with another woman in the church, the church was celebrating this. Paul says, "Come and exercise church discipline." He says in First Corinthians chapter five, verse five, you 're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction, a lethros, of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." There's the other word, destruction. Now, the question is, if this man is handed over to Satan for destruction, does that mean that Satan destroys him? Does that mean Satan obliterates him? Does that mean that he ceases to exist? Because there's hopes that his spirit will be saved on the day of the Lord. It means temporary discipline. It means that God has given him over to temporary discipline by Satan in order to see how sick he is in his sin and how destructive he's been in his behavior, that he will repent and come back to faith. Now, we know in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 that this man probably had repented of his sin and had come back with sorrow and tears and repentance, and the church was not receiving him back. And so Paul has to say to the church, hey, listen, receive this man back. So the word there does not mean when he's given over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, it doesn't mean obliteration, it doesn't mean annihilation, it means a period of torment, a period of discipline, a period of punishment. 1 Timothy 6.9, another Pauline use of this word, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. Does money make you fall into non-existence? Do you cease to exist? Are you obliterated? Are you annihilated? No, it's used with the word ruin, destruction. It means that you become fruitful. You become corrupt. You become taken over by this in punishment. So, the Greek word alethros does not mean annihilation. It does not mean obliteration. It does not mean ceasing to exist. It means what it, a period of, of, of chastisement, a period of torment, a period of, of, of becoming ruined, becoming corrupt. Now, let's talk about the word apolome. Because apolome is often used to talk about destroy or Perish. But there's many uses of the word apolamine throughout the Bible, especially in the Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew 26, 8, when um, ointment was poured out wastefully, it meant that it had no purpose. The, the disciples in Matthew 26:8, when the disciples saw it, when the disciples saw the woman pouring out the ointment, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Why this apolamine? Now, it wasn't that the ointment was destroyed. It ceased to exist. It was, why did you waste it? It didn't, it didn't fit the purpose. Why, why are you just pouring this out? In Mark 2.22, talks about wine skins with holes. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. Apollome, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Does this mean the wine ceases to exist, that it's destroyed? Or does it just simply mean that it's, it's, it's corrupt? It's not useful. It's fruitless. It's, it's come to the point where it's, it's not useful anymore. In Luke 15.9, you find out that it's the parable of the the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And the word lost there is translated apolome. Luke 15:9. when she had found it, she called together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. The, the coin had been apolome, had been lost. Does that mean the coin had ceased to exist? Did that mean the coin was obliterated? No, it just means that it was lost. It was fruitless. It was corrupt. She couldn't find it. Those are the synoptic gospel uses of the word apollymi. It doesn't mean destroyed, it doesn't mean obliterated, it doesn't mean annihilated. It usually means corrupt, fruitless, ruined, or not having any purpose. Now let's look at 2 Peter 3, chapter 3, verse 5. Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished apollomy the world was deluged with water and perished now here's the question did was the world destroyed was the world obliterated off the map did planet earth cease to exist and then god create a new earth no but peter says it was destroyed it was apollomy it was perished what does that mean well it means it was disfigured it became corrupted. It became ruined. The flood had destroyed the usefulness of the earth. It doesn't mean that it was totally annihilated. And so even that verse right there gives great credence to the fact that even the world wasn't destroyed, Apolome, by the flood. It was it was ruined. So this word for um, destruction does not mean annihilated or obliterated or cease to exist. In none of these cases that we've just looked at do the subject cease to exist or become extinct or annihilated. They've become corrupt. they become ruined. they become useless for their original intended purpose. And so that's what's going on in hell. Eternal destruction does not mean that you will be destroyed, obliterated, no longer existing. It just means that in heaven, as you're experiencing eternal conscious torment, you will experience ruin, corruption. You will be lost. You will be no longer useless. You will be fruitless. You will be um, not according to your original purpose of glorifying God. It will be an unending period of torment. Now, one thing we have to look at is that the word eternal is in front of there. It says eternal punishment. Again, why would Paul put the word eternal in front of the word punishment? He could have just said it was a period of punishment that happens for a period of time in the person's annihilated. He puts the word eternal in front of that. Now, it's already been demonstrated from the study of the word eternal that we've already looked at from lexicons and from Matthew 25 and from Revelation chapter 19, that this means ongoing. Literally, what Paul says is age long, in the age to come, which never in the New Testament speaks of this age as coming to an end, but as continuing. Now, Wanamaker is a scholar, and he has written part of the commentary of the Greek New Testament, the epistles to the Thessalonians, the commentary on the Greek text, the New International Greek Commentary. He's a a well-known scholar. Uh, Listen to what he says about this text, about this passage with the word um, eternal put before the word punishment. I quote Wanamaker in the New International Greek Commentary where he says this, quote, "...the problem is made more difficult by the qualifying adjective eternal. It can mean either something without end or something that is final or ultimate." The latter, final or ultimate, would accord with the sense of annihilation, while the former, something without end, would fit the idea of destruction in the metaphorical sense of punishment. And listen to what he says. As there is no evidence in Paul, or the rest of the New Testament for that matter, for a concept of final annihilation of the godless, the expression eternal destruction should probably be taken in a metaphorical manner as indicating the severity of the punishment awaiting the enemies of God. So he takes the argument that it could mean both, but based upon the word eternal used by Paul and by the rest of the evidence of the New Testament, he comes to the logical and and, and exegetical conclusion that it does not mean annihilationism, but eternal conscious suffering in hell. Now, There's another statement that gives us a definition about this. It talks about being away from the presence of the Lord. Away from the presence of the Lord. Now, there's a Greek preposition there. Away from the presence of the Lord. And in that Greek little preposition, in almost all cases, it means... Separated from, banished, translated, um, shut out. Those are the different definitions. Now, there's some debate about how this Greek preposition is to be translated because if you talk to Chris, Date, and others that I debated with, they would say that this Greek preposition does not mean shut out or banished, but it basically means the source of. Um, that God is the source of this destruction. It doesn't mean that a person is shut out of God's presence or, or a person is banished out of God's presence or separated from God's presence. Again, I want to quote Wanamaker um, in his exegetical commentary on the Greek text. He says this, quote, Paul does not describe the punishment of the godless here or anywhere else in graphic detail. Rather, he focuses on exclusion from the glorious and majestic presence of the Lord with a way, that Greek preposition, having its normal spatial connotation. So he talks about the spatial connotation, and that's really the way that that Greek preposition is almost always translated. It means away from, banished, shut out. Um, It it means that a person is um, outside the presence of God. And so the question then becomes, if that's the normal way of translating that Greek preposition, how can a person who's been annihilated, how can a person who's died in hell be shut out from the presence of God if they no longer exist? Logically, a person must continue to exist to not have access to Christ's presence. And so I think contextually here, the nature of the punishment is eternal as well as retributive or penal. It's outside the presence of the Lord. It's of little significance if those punished are not conscious of their separation from the Lord. And so I think what Paul's saying here is that it's eternal banishment, eternal torment, eternal ongoing punishment outside of the presence of the Lord forever and ever, not a total destruction or an annihilation. Now, Let's just bring this down to real life, because no matter how you slice it, this is a topic that is very difficult to to wrap our minds around, and it's not a pleasant topic. Who wants to talk about about hell and the nature of eternal suffering? Uh, Some people come to the conclusions of annihilationism based upon emotional or philosophical arguments. They will say things like, I cannot conceive of a god who would actually allow people to suffer forever and ever and ever. It doesn't seem like God is just. It does not seem like God is merciful. And so it's a whole lot more tenable. It's a whole lot more believable or palpable for me to accept annihilationism because at least the person is punished For a period, but then they just cease to exist. And so God is still meeting out His justice. The lost still go to hell. It's not universalism where everybody goes to heaven and there is no hell, but it's a whole lot easier to wrap my mind around a person uh, spending just a short period or whatever that duration of time is suffering and then eventually dying out in hell. I can see how a person do, comes to those conclusions. Now, now, Chris and the others will not come to this with as much of a, an emotional appeal as they will exegetical. They've really come to the exegetical conclusions that they've come to based upon the text. Uh, I mean, when I was set up to do this um, podcast, I didn't realize what I was getting into. Um, actually, here's how it happened. If you want to know for my listeners, um, I got a, an email from Leighton Flowers. You guys know I, I do a lot of podcasts with Leighton, and we talk more about Calvinism and issues like that. Well, they had contacted Leighton to see if Leighton would be willing to do this podcast on hell. And and, and I guess he didn't feel like he had the time or whatever, and so he gave them my name, and so they contacted me and said, would you like to do this? And I said, sure. And so they gave me the person that I was going to be debating, Chris Date. And so um, Chris and I had a conversation uh, about a week before we were going to do the podcast together, and um, he gave me his background, and we had a great discussion, and I truly believe he's a brother in Christ. I believe he's an evangelical. I believe he's conservative. I believe that he's he, he, he and I have a lot in common on, uh, on a lot of things. Just this one issue, I think, that he's, he's off on, but he sent me to his website, and I didn't realize he had a website that had all of these debates, and you go on the first website, uh, you go on his website, and on the very fr- front page, uh, he did a debate um, on, on a, on a uh, radio station in England with Dr. Al Mohler, um, the Southern Seminary, the, the president of the seminary that, I, that I'm getting my doctoral from. Um, and so he's, he's co-written books and he's got all of this stuff. And so that was a little intimidating. And then when I got on the podcast, before we started, I found out that they initially had asked Dr. James White to be the one to come on here. And so um, I felt even more intimidated that you know Dr. White had turned it down. And so uh, here I am representing the eternal conscious torment view with guys that are, that are considered experts in their field. And I think it was a good podcast. I'll let you be the judge of that. But here's the point, um, regardless of, of which view you hold to, whether you're an, a conditional immortality or annihilationist, or you believe in eternal conscious torment in hell, the bottom line is that um, in our evangelism, we don't want anybody to go there. We want to be clear in telling the entire world that God is a God of justice, God is a God of wrath, and He will punish sin. He will come again, Jesus will come again in vengeance, inflicting Justice and punishment upon his enemies. And if you do not have a personal relationship with Christ by repenting of your sin and trusting in him alone as Lord and Savior of your life, you will perish. Now, we disagree on what the word perish means. I believe perish, you will spend eternity, ongoing, continual duration in hell, consciously experiencing the torment of God, away from his presence, day and night, unceasing rest. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, the fire never goes out, the worm never dies. That's what I believe the Bible teaches. The other view would say God sends you to hell, you experience a period of of suffering, a period of torment. And when that time is up, and it may be different for each person, how long it can be, it, it depends upon uh, God in that, or the person I really don't know, I don't have an answer to that, then you die. They believe perish means die. Your soul and your body literally die in hell, cease to exist, annihilate. No, You're no longer there. You're no longer in existence. Because humans were not meant originally to live immortal lives, and only Christians are given the gift of immortality in regeneration. And so if you believe that, if you, if you hold to conditional immortality that Christians, only Christians are given the gift of immortality in regeneration, then it logically flows that you would deny eternal conscious torment in hell for the lost because you don't believe they're, they're given to live eternally. But here's the question I have. In the resurrection of the dead, when the righteous and unrighteous are raised to new life to face the judgment, what is the nature of the body? Of the resurrected lost person. Now we know a saved person, the Bible speaks a lot about the resurrection of a saved person. They in the twinkling of an eye, they are the, the perishable becomes um, imperishable, the, the mortal t- puts on immortality, and, and the nature of the glorified body of a Christian uh, is glorified, it's meant to live in heaven forever. But the Bible doesn't really say a lot about what the nature is of the resurrected body of a lost person. But we know it has to be somewhat miraculous because if a person's been in the in, in the grave for thousands of years and his body is reunited with the soul there has to be some type of miraculous raising to new life what 's the nature of that body? Is it an immortal body or is it a mortal body? the Bible I don 't think answers that question. I think you have to say that the conditional immortality view is inconclusive the Bible doesn 't give enough information on that and so logically you come to the conclusion that well if the Bible doesn't teach immortality of lost people, then logically it concludes that there must be annihilationism. but I would say this. You have to go by what the scripture teaches about hell and all the verses that we've looked at speak of it as eternal conscious torment, not annihilation. So I know this has been a heavy podcast. I know that it's dealt with an issue that I wasn't that familiar with, but I've had to do a lot of research to look at what the other side believes. And I look forward to uh, you listening to the podcast, Pastor With No Answers. I think it's supposed to air the Monday after Thanksgiving. Um, you can go h- listen to the podcast. Really, I was outnumbered. I was the only traditionalist with the three other guys being um, annihilationists. and so. Um, but it was cordial. It was good. I didn't feel ganged up on. I felt like it was a good opportunity, and um, I hope to go on there again. And so... Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to do that. But I just on this podcast wanted to share with you um, just a a more robust, fuller treatment of this that I may not have gotten time to do in that podcast. Um, But it was a good interchange on these issues. Again, I appreciate you listening to Understanding Christianity. I value your listenership to this podcast. Um, If you would do me a favor and just give me feedback. I'd love to receive an email from you. I'd love for you to tweet me. Some of you have tweeted me and Facebooked me. Um, I'd love to receive an email. Maybe we can answer some of your questions on on the future podcast. Um, If you would go to iTunes and give a a rating and a review of this, it would be great. Hopefully a positive one. I've gone on there and seen some negative ones uh, written about me, which that's okay. I have thick skin. You know, people, it's a free country. They can say what they want to say. I have a clear conscience before God that I know that... um, that I'm doing what he's called me to do. And so I appreciate you doing that. Hey, listen, um, if you listen to this podcast, hopefully it'll be out before Thanksgiving. Will you have a very happy Thanksgiving? Eat a lot of turkey, but most of all, give thanks and praise to our great God for the many blessings that he's given you this year. Um, Count 2015 as a year of God's blessings and spend time worshiping and praising him with your friends and family. Thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon thank